welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. It's funny how these things happen, but as we continue our series on holiday horror, our show this week mirrors our show last week in a way that was, I promise, completely unintentional. Just like our interview with Andrew Amelinx, we have one murder that presages another. And again, that second murder takes place right during the holidays. In this case, not on Thanksgiving Day, but on the day after Christmas. Rather than freeze our tailpipes off up north, however, we're traveling a good way south to Hot Springs, Arkansas, to speak with author Christopher Thrasher about the vicious slaying of an unarmed man and the repercussions that that had on criminal justice in the Jim Crow South. Thrasher is the co-author, alongside historian Guy Lancaster, of The Murder of Oscar Chitwood in Hot Springs, Arkansas, published by the History Press. That said, before we sit down for the interview, we wanted to catch you all up on our first ever Crime Capsule giveaway. As we approach our 50th episode this holiday season, for which, again, thank you, we're giving away one free copy of an Arcadia book to a lucky listener. Here's how it'll work. Drop us a line by writing us a short email at crimecapsule at evergreenpodcasts.com. Both parts of that email address are all one word, and we'll repeat it in just a moment. And in that email, tell us your name, what city or state you're writing in from, and which of our most recent episodes on the paranormal that you enjoy the most and why. It doesn't have to be long. Just tell us what was your favorite and a word or two about that. Maybe you've seen one of the ghosts of old Brooklyn. Maybe you've discovered a phantom shipwreck in the Lake Michigan Triangle. Who knows? But we'll select the best response, and that lucky listener will receive a free copy of that author's book. The giveaway closes on December 24th, Christmas Eve, So drop us a line as soon as you can to get your name in the hat, and we'll announce the winner in the new year. Again, that email address is crimecapsule, all one word, at evergreenpodcasts.com. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. Let's sit down with Christopher Thrasher and hear about the Wild West of old Hot Springs, Arkansas in the early 20th century. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your previous work, would you just introduce yourself a little bit to us and tell us about some of your previous books? Uh, Sure, I can tell you a little bit about some of my work. Uh, So uh, I am a a historian. Uh, I have a a PhD in American history from Texas Tech University. Uh, My first book uh, was on the history of American fight sports. Uh, So I talked about boxing, wrestling, mixed martial arts, how that changes, why that changes, what that tells us about the evolution of American masculinity and how men see themselves and how they struggle with things like violence and uh, and their their ethical or moral duties and things like that. Uh, My second one, uh, which came out last year, uh, was a Civil War book. It was called Suffering in the Army of Tennessee. Uh, It's a social history of the Confederate Army of Tennessee from Atlanta uh, to Nashville. So the last major campaign in the Western theater uh, of the Civil War. Uh, And the thing that I 
tried to emphasize with that book uh, was that idea of suffering because that's something that came up so often in the primary sources, uh, both in terms of the men talking about their own suffering and the pain that they were feeling, but then also talking about their, their conflicted kind of manhood and their acknowledgement that they were also causing suffering and how that gave them pause and sometimes made them wonder if they were doing the right thing. Uh, and so that kind of conflicted uh, Southern Southern uh, masculinity, Southern manhood was something that I, I really tried to trace out. Uh, and then this is my third one. My, my uh, co-author, uh, Guy Lancaster, of course, uh, did this uh, with me. Uh, and then I have a fourth one, um, which is going to come out next year, which is going to be a, another Civil War book. Uh, it's going to be a similar book to Suffering in the Army of Tennessee, but it's going to be about the Port Hudson campaign in Louisiana. Um, so that's that's kind of my uh, my progression in terms of books. Yeah, we hear uh, a lot about the Port Hudson campaign down here in New Orleans. It is still very much alive in public memory. Uh, very interesting one. Let me ask you this uh, before we get into Oscar Chitwood, um, it, your first book about American fight sports. Was this a book that was informed as much by theory as by practice? Were you a boxer, a wrestler, an MMA fighter yourself before <laughs> getting in the uh, getting in the intellectual arena? <laughs> you know, it's it's always interesting. You know, people with good reason always ask when you you know when you publish a book, they they try to figure out why you why you picked a topic, uh, which is you know it's a great thing to to know and re and reflect on. So yeah, so when I was working on, people would ask me, they would say, "Oh, are you a fighter?" And my my joke was no, but I've been beat up a lot. Uh, so there I, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I dabbled a little bit in fighting. Um, I, I did some karate. I did some mixed martial arts. I was never any good at it. Uh, but I, I did enjoy you know, spending time in those spaces and taking classes and jujitsu and boxing and doing a little bit of everything. Um, so, so a little bit, but not not to any significant or meaningful degree. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say anything beyond what I'm about to say, but uh, <laughs> southern, southern, southern boys, southern boys, we've been known to get into some scraps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's uh, sometimes it's good to know just one or two things about what to do when you get into one. But, um, you know, beyond that, I'd have to have, have clearance from my attorney to, uh, <laughs> you know, to say, say any more. That sounds like a very interesting trajectory you've had there, Christopher. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. It's been good work. Let me ask you this. Uh, you said that this is your first collaboration, uh, the Oscar Chitwood book with, with Guy Lancaster. Uh, first of all, how did you and Guy come to the story of Oscar Chitwood? And then secondly, uh, what was the nature of the collaboration? What did the writing process look like? Sure. Well, I've got to give all the credit in the world to uh, to Guy Lancaster. He's really the brains of the operation. He's the he's the mastermind. Uh, I think I think he's very much the lead author. So the, the way we, we began working together is I was struggling with uh, suffering in the Army of Tennessee and I was going through that editorial process and you know going through university uh, presses you have a lot of peer reviewers and and I'm, I'm sure you and many of your listeners understand you can you can kind of get caught in an uh, editorial purgatory there for a while uh, but I, I wanted to oh, yeah. write and I wanted to publish and thankfully and, and I say that with with no disrespect to University of Tennessee Press they were very good to me it just it takes time to you know to get a, a book published and uh, I wanted to write and I wanted to publish and I wanted to keep refining those skills and so I was looking for 
kind of smaller pieces that I could do. And I stumbled across uh, the Encyclopedia of Arkansas Online, which uh, if any of your listeners have any interest uh, in doing a little bit of historical writing, if you want a very supportive environment, uh, you can go to their website. Uh, They have a section on there for people that may want to contribute to the encyclopedia. They have really good guidelines about what they're looking for. Uh, They have topics that they would like to have authors for. You can contact them. Uh, I think they'll give just about anybody a shot. I've even had a couple of my students undergraduate students have written articles for them. Uh, so I thought, well, this would be a nice thing. I'll write an article two on, or two on this. Uh, and I can, you know, kind of, kind of keep my, my, myself limber, kind of keep my writing muscles yeah, active, sure. uh, while I'm, you know, hoping that the, the big project comes to fruition. Uh, and Guy Lancaster is the, is the editor for the encyclopedia. So I wrote a couple articles there, uh, and he, uh, he and I had a had a good relationship via email, and, and he appreciated my work, and I appreciated him as an editor. He's he's an absolutely wonderful editor, and just should be a great author. Uh, and then he asked me about writing a, a journal article, uh, a couple other things, and then eventually he came to me, and he said, hey, he goes, I've got an idea for a book. Uh, and he says, I want to write a book on lynching in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And he says, there's three incidents that I'm interested in. So there's kind of three sections to the book as I envision it. Uh, He says, there are two that are very typical kind of lynching stories, tragic and horrible, of course. Uh, But there's two that he had researched pretty well that were both cases of young African-American men uh, that had been accused of crimes against white people. One was accused of a sexual assault of of a young white girl, and one was accused of a sexual assault on a young white man, or excuse me, not sexual assault, but a, a, a murder of a, of a young white man. And, pretty straightforward but very tragic stories that we see too all all too often. Uh, he goes, but there's this other one, there's this Oscar Chitwood guy, uh, and he said, and I, I, I've kind of got just a little on him, but there are reports that this was a lynching, and I want to investigate that, but I've got other things going on. He goes, how would you feel about coming on as my co-author? You live in Hot Springs. You've got better access to the sources. Guy lives in Little Rock, which is about an hour, hour and a half away. Um he says, how you feel about doing that? And then you can, you can help me kind of smooth things out and kind of be a second set of eyes. Uh, he says, I've already got a publisher. You know, we're, we're good. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, delighted to work with Guy. Delighted to get what I was, was hoping would be kind of an easy win, which uh, I have learned. The- <laughs> there <laughs> that, aren't very many of those. <laughs> that, 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 that is a laughter of the man that knows where this story is going. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, so I, I learned. Uh, we're still hunting for those easy wins. Aren't we? We're still looking. <laughs> so I've, I've now learned the hard way with, with, with no disrespect at all to Guy. He's absolutely great to work with. But Lauren, anytime, anytime I walk into something thinking it's going to be an easy win, something will go wrong. Uh, so we had an idea, we wrote it, uh, we sent it to, to the publisher. They said, part of the problem we had was it was going to be a book about lynching in hot springs. Well, the conclusion that we came to is Oscar Chitwood wasn't lynched. And so they said, you've got a story on lynching in hot springs. You're talking about three men and your whole argument is that one wasn't lynched. So how is this, how does this make, like, it's, it's three interesting stories, but how does this make any sense as an academic book, which is a perfectly fair criticism? And so we said, all right, well, maybe let's rethink this. Maybe this isn't really about lynching. Maybe this is about violence and vigilantism and about this really fascinating place called Hot Springs, Arkansas. And so we said, 
let's let's expand it um, and let's look at and I forget the the next iteration of that. I think we had something like ten stories we looked at. Uh, we had a federal agent that had been murdered uh, by bootleggers, and that crime was never officially solved. Uh, there were several others uh, kind of mysterious or kind of kind of problematic uh, killings and crimes. And so we sent that back and, and try to make an overarching argument about violence and, and vigilanteism and late 19th, early 20th century hot springs. So the publisher came back and said, we, we feel like you haven't really connected the dots here. You've got a lot of interesting stories. This isn't really an academic book. There's not really a, a scholarly thesis here. Uh, so we're going to pass. Uh, we appreciate it, but but no thanks. So we lost our publisher. So what I thought was going to be an easy win was now starting over almost. Uh, and it would have been really easy. And Guy and I talked about maybe we just need to throw in the towel. Maybe we just need to give up. But we both kind of came to the conclusion, no, we, we've got something interesting here. There's lots of interesting stuff here. We're just struggling with the frame. We've done the research. We're, we're, we're telling stories well. We just need to make our argument. And so we said, well, maybe our problem was that we went too big. And maybe what we need to do is find the one story in this that's the most interesting and the most helpful to people that are trying to understand the past and the most unique. And let's just tell that story. And so we said of all the stories that we had looked at, the story of Oscar Chitwood was by far the most interesting and the most unusual uh, and the one that had really not been touched at all by anybody uh, and so we said, let's try that again. And so we focused and we wrote a, a draft of what eventually did get published, uh, focusing on Oscar Chitwood, uh, the man who was not lynched, and, uh, and sent that to History Press. And uh, they've been uh, wonderful to work with. They've been very supportive uh, and really appreciated what we were trying to do. So that's, that's kind of how it came together. Uh, the other question you had about how, how, does that, how did that work uh, well, what we decided, of course, there's been multiple iterations of this project, but in general, I think the idea is that uh, that guy is the brains of the operation. He is the guy who really, uh, really understands these big historiographic issues, uh, and that I hopefully am a little bit of a storyteller, uh, and that I was living in Hot Springs, so I was the guy that was uh, finding sources that people didn't even know were there and were, were kind of digging through some of this stuff, uh, which was probably the most fun part of the project for me was was digging through things that nobody knew existed. Uh, and so I think you can even kind of tell if you look at the table of contents, uh, there's two chapters that were mostly my writing and they're the ones that are like in quotation marks because uh, that's kind of my style. And then the others are ones where Guy kind of took the lead. And so he kind of wrote his chunks. I wrote my chunks. We put them together. Uh, and then he went through it all and I went through it all. And when we both felt like we, we felt good about how everything was connected and how everything flowed from one section to the next, then we, we felt like we had something. That back and forth is a very creatively yeah. productive, isn't it? And you definitely get that sense of, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, two different perspectives on, on one story enables uh, just a lot more sort of vitality than you might otherwise get. Now, I, I want to ask you, to understand what happened in 1910, in August 1910, we do have to understand where it happened. And you write that that Hot Springs from very early on was a place where 
peoples and languages and cultures, and in particular, ideas of law and order and justice collided. And you say that this is true more so in Hot Springs than in other parts of Arkansas. Now, why was this the case? It all comes down to the water, I think. Uh, You have this very unique natural resource. And so unlike most places in the South where the economy is dominated uh, by agriculture or maybe by by trade or even by manufacturing, you have this very unique natural resource. And so people are coming here uh, very early on. It becomes a tourist town, becomes one of the first tourist towns in the country. Uh, And then it develops an identity kind of based around the idea of this is a place, while it's very rural and very isolated in some ways, it's a place where people from all over the the region, all over the country, all over the world are going to come. And that that causes the development of a very unique culture. You know, it's funny because you also write that the... With this confluence of people surrounding, you know, folks taking the waters and indulging in the restorative, you know, effects and so forth, there's something which uh, most folks may not realize, which is that the terrain itself was also uh, antithetical to traditional agriculture, right? It's a more rugged terrain. It's a little bit more isolated. And one of the things that kind of led to some of the personality or character that Hot Springs developed in its early uh, years was that uh, this remoteness, isolatedness, isolation, and and uh, sort of ruggedness allowed the outlaws and the gangsters and the bandits, you know, to sort of come in and take advantage of that and enjoy that just as much as the law-abiding folks. Absolutely. And I got to say, Christopher, I was so delighted when for the second. Uh, series in a row. We had some highway robbery in our last series uh, up in Salem, Massachusetts, not a week or two ago. And now we've got more actual highway robbery by the James gang, you know, taking place. And it's, you know, we, we use that metaphor so often, but it's rare that as we're reading these books that we actually get a taste of the real thing. So I just wanted to thank you for an, a second helping. It's like the Thanksgiving <laughs> leftovers of highway robbery, uh, you know, so we're very grateful. We're very grateful. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that was helpful. So you you write that one of the things that was interesting about Hot Springs is that it had a major growth period, in particular, right after the Civil War, during the Reconstruction era. What what factors fed into the growth of Hot Springs at this time? The the biggest thing is that Hot Springs, going back arguably to prehistory, certainly to uh, to the Andrew Jackson administration in the 1830s, when Hot Springs was set aside as a federal reservation, not a Native American reservation, but it's like a natural reservation, uh, that it's a place of healing. The idea was uh, that this was a place where you come for healing. Uh, Hot Springs was sometimes referred to as the last resort uh kind of kind of a double entendre mm, I, nice. I like that too that's i wish nice. i could claim credit yeah, for that phrase i wish i wish i could claim credit for that but i've i've heard that many times i couldn't tell you who said it first i'm sure a lot it's occurred to a lot of people but i love it uh as, as so many people do because it, it's that double entendre of it's it's the last resort in the sense that if you are dying if you are in pain, if you are suffering, and if nothing else will cure you, if the doctors back home in Ohio or Mississippi or Montana uh, can't cure you, 
this is the place of last resort because maybe this this curative water, maybe this can help you. Maybe this can be it. And then it's also kind of the last resort in the sense going back to that geographic isolation uh, that it's kind of for a lot of people, you, you really felt like with good reason, wherever you were from, you had kind of come to the to the literal end of the line. You had come to the most isolated place you could really get to. Uh, so. Of course, at the end of the Civil War, we have tens of thousands of men uh, and some women as well who have suffered horribly in the war, uh, either from illnesses, uh, from injuries, from wounds in battle. Uh, and so these people need healing. They, they need uh, some way to, to cure or to at least alleviate their pain. Uh, and so... They heard stories about hot springs, and so many of them, many of them came here. And then we also have uh, an increasing transportation revolution because one of the things that the, particularly the Union Army did uh, is they uh, is they fought the war across the Confederacy in places like Arkansas. Is that as they came, they built railroads and they built highways and they built bridges, and so they are exposing a lot of these, these men, particularly these northern men, these western men, to the south for the first time. Uh, there is word that is spreading of this kind of mythical place in the mountains where they have this hot water that will cure you, and it is a more accessible place to get to than it's ever been uh, because we have this, this kind of additional transportation revolution uh, largely built on the back of the, of the Union military. And this military. has all taken place, I mean, of course, they're building the railroads during the campaigns, but the sort of the major the major growth of the hospitals and the hotels that you write about these sort of very famous hotels this is all mid 1870s 1880s um, there you, you write that there's a fire or a several fires which sort of consume much of downtown hot springs and then that sort of served as a catalyst for sort of building back sort of bigger and better so to speak yeah absolutely so there were a series of uh, series of fires there was a big one in 1905 another one in 1913 i think i've written articles on both these for the encyclopedia of arkansas uh, i think that was i think that was actually the first i think the 1913 fire may be the first article i wrote for them actually but yeah uh so what happened was in 05 and in the 13 there was one a little before that as well that was a little smaller but came through and kind of ravaged much of hot springs uh and that's why uh they uh, the federal government, which is is operating a lot of these facilities, uh, they pass these new regulations and they say, OK, if you're going to build a bathhouse, if you're going to build any of this stuff on federal land and get a federal lease to do that, uh, you're going to have to build it out of fireproof materials. You're going to have to have stone and brick and, and things like this. And so that's part of why today, if if uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Hot Springs, I don't know if you've Not personally yet. ever it's been there. List. It's on my list. It's on my list. Yeah. It, 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 it needs to be on everybody's list. It, anybody with any interest in history certainly has to has to have that on their list. But you can walk downtown, walk down Bathhouse Row, and you can see these bathhouses uh, from the 1890s and from the early 20th century uh, that that survived the fire, and they still survive today because they just they just built them like uh, they built them like tanks. Uh, for many reasons, one of which is to survive to survive the fires, and they've had the whole adaptive reuse program and all that. So only two of them are bathhouses now, but but yeah, so that that kind of caused it to kind of kind of clean out. It's almost like with these, you know, with, with forest fires. Forest fires are very devastating to the to the forest, but they are required for growth, and they are required to bring forth something new. And so you see that that constant renewal in hot springs. Yeah, it is interesting, you know, as um 
as our listeners will probably remember, one of the great gangsters of the 1920s and 30s, Alvin Karpus. I mean, he, uh, like many gangsters of the day, uh, he sort of hid out there for a little while while he was on the run. And I'm, I'm sure most folks are very aware of the whole Bonnie and Clyde saga, you know, and their, their time in Hot Springs, too. I mean, it has a reputation, doesn't it? It does. It does. It absolutely does. And in a reputation that uh, continues in some ways. Uh, I don't know that you see the same same members of the mafia there today that you would have seen 100 years ago. Uh, but Hot Springs, I think, still has this legacy. And it's one of the things I find fascinating about it, of being in some ways a, a town of healing and a very conservative kind of kind of faith-based community in some ways, but then also a community where they have uh, Oaklawn, which is a racetrack and a casino. They have gambling. Uh, they have, uh, I believe, the largest marijuana uh, dispensary in the South is in Hot Springs. Uh, certainly they have several. Uh, they have the, uh, the euphemistically titled gentlemen's clubs and things like that. So there's there's still some there's still some vice there. There's still some of that, but then you also see these very large churches. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Christopher, as I was reading uh, y'all's book, I I started collecting adjectives um, to to describe <laughs> this sort of city of my imagination. You know that I do want to go to Hot Springs, but but I started sort of taking taking down a little list of of descriptors, and I'm just going to share a couple. Um, <laughs> they come from your okay. book. I didn't make them up. <laughs> so, uh, children, close your ears. We've got violent. We've got licentious. We have flammable. You had a very flammable city. Uh, yes, gambling prone was on the list, but I think my favorite, 
out of all of the descriptions of Hot Springs, my favorite had to be, it was a syphilitic city. I mean, good heavens, man. I tell you what. So, uh, children, you can open your ears again. It's fine. But what on earth led to these massive outbreaks of syphilis? And if you can describe it in such a way that uh, isn't going to offend too many folks here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I can. And actually, there's a book uh, that just came out or is just about to come out. Uh, and I believe it's called uh, The Mecca of the American Syphilitic. <laughs> Oh um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You can double check. I believe that was the working title. title. Uh, there was a, a scholar that came. Yeah. And so what happened was in, in, in defending hot springs, uh, is, as I, as I do want to do, cause it's, it's a city near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's, I, I don't think there was any more syphilis being spread in hot springs and then in other places, what happened was syphilis, of course, is a horrible, horrible uh, disease. And before we have the rise of antibiotics in the 1930s and 1940s, there's really no cure for it. Uh, antibiotics really are the only thing even today that will cure syphilis. And so if you are suffering from syphilis, uh, maybe because you have made some questionable choices, maybe through things that are no fault of your own, because of course it can, you know, it can spread in ways that are not, you know, morally It didn't quote unquote seem like a good uh, idea at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what they, what they were trying to do in, oh, from, the time of the Civil War up until the rise of antibiotics in many cases, uh, is they were giving people uh, doses of things like mercury, um, which, of course, is, is really, really bad people, for yeah. you. And people at the time, yeah, 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 it will, it will absolutely kill you. Uh, and people certainly by the late 19th century, even I've, and I've been, I'm a Civil War guy, so I've even seen comments from Civil War surgeons saying, well, be careful, don't give too much of this because this is dangerous stuff. I think, I think smart doctors in the 19th century probably saw mercury kind of the way we see chemotherapy. Like we acknowledge it's really bad and it can be very harmful, but you've got you've to kill the disease that's killing you somehow. And maybe this is kind of a last gasp. So the idea in Hot Springs was, so, so people that were suffering from syphilis all over the country, all over the world, would come to Hot Springs to try to cure the syphilis because nothing else would cure it. And then in Hot Springs, they would treat you with mercury, which they knew was dangerous. But then they would bathe you with the hot water and they would have you drink the hot water. The idea was, and unfortunately it, it doesn't work, but the idea was that you could ingest the mercury or you could have a topical treatment of the mercury uh, and that would kill the syphilis. They hoped it doesn't, but they hoped it did. They thought it did. And then you could use this hot water, this amazing curative water, and that would purge the mercury out of your system and that would clean you out in that way. Um, and so that was that was the hope. The hope was this special water is good enough to purify you of the horrible, dangerous medication you're using to try to try to kill the thing that's killing you. And you could even go now if you uh, if you ever have a chance uh, to Hot Springs and go to the visitor center, which is in the old Fort Ice bathhouse, uh, and something. And I and I used to do lead tours for the Park Service uh, in the in the Fort Ice, and I would would point out a blue tent on some of the tubs and on some of the some of the equipment that was used and I would ask people, what do you think stained it blue? Do you have any idea what might stain it blue? Uh, and the uh, the comment 
that I would occasionally get in the correct comment is, well, that's 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 the mercury. And it was staining some of that. Well, so long as you guys aren't handing out free samples, I think you're probably probably no. in, in the clear. <laughs> uh, Hot Springs, city of yeah. city of a yeah. thousand charms. Let me tell you this. Uh, <laughs> the, the crux of your story, Christopher, the, cru- the crux of this story about Oscar Chitwood, um, for all of the wildness and, and the kind of... Um, you know, entertainments that were taking place in Hot Springs at the time. The, cru- the crux of your story really hinges on this event that took place, this encounter on August 17th, 1910. And what is interesting is that in some ways um, our conversation mirrors the one we had uh, two weeks ago with Andrew Amelinks in that we have two separate events. We have, uh, so, which are, one takes place a little earlier in the year, and then the second takes place during the actual holidays. And so um, we need to talk about what happened in, in August today so that we can understand what happened in December, the day after Christmas, uh, next week. But this encounter took place, and and it changed not just one man's life, several men's life, but it changed the entire structure of law and order and justice in Hot Springs at that moment. And I'm just going to ask you to tell us this story because it it really reads like it could have fallen right out of the celluloid of, you know, a film like Unforgiven or Tombstone or, you know, any of these. It is one hell of a shootout and it is one hell of an aftermath. Uh, so would you just take us to that day and and to the Hot Springs versions of the OK Corral? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really, really fascinating day uh, in the history of Hot Springs. And, and you're right. I think I think it is something that, uh, that that somebody someday should should make a movie out of because I think it has all the, the great cinematic elements. Uh, so it was it was kind of a day like any other to start with. Uh, we have a, a sheriff, Sid Haupt, uh, who is. Uh, Kind of holding court in the uh, the Garland County Courthouse in his office. Uh, he has uh, he has his brother uh, with him as well, and who's his deputy. And so the the two hot brothers uh, get a uh, a notice from a, a sheriff in a, in a neighboring county uh, that they are going to be they should be on the lookout for the Chitwood brothers who are accused of stealing horses, uh, and that there had been a report uh, that the uh, the Chitwood brothers were in town in Hot Springs, and the Hops and I and I love this idea of the of the Hops and the Chitwoods uh, being kind of different versions, different uh, uh, visions of masculinity. You've got the Hops, and they're they're clean cut. If you, you know, you think about like the uh, uh, to, to draw a comparison to the shootout, the OK Corral. You know, the the lawman, and they're wearing the proper suits, and they you know they go to the right church, and they're members of the Masons Lodge, and they're very clean cut, and they're law and order. Uh, but very dangerous characters uh, in their own right. And then you have uh, the Chitwood brothers who look like guys out of a Wild West movie. Um, and they wear the, the Tom Mix, the peaked hats and the kerchiefs, and they, they carry their, their pistol on their hip uh, and very much kind of see themselves in that, that, mo- that model. Uh, so the sheriff tells his, his brother, the deputy, uh, I think that the, the Chitwoods may be next door, just next door to the, uh, to the courthouse, uh, camping out at the, at the wagon yard. Uh, why don't you go over there and see if you can bring them over? And so the deputy goes and 
um, chats with them and says, hey, my brother wants to have a word with you. Uh, it's a small town. Everybody kind of knows who everybody is. Uh, the brothers agree. Um, I'm not sure why, but they agree uh, to, uh, to come to the courthouse and they tie up their horses uh, on, the, uh, on the courthouse lawn there at the Hitchin Post and they go upstairs uh, and they want to know what the sheriff wants with them. And the sheriff, of course, there's different versions of this story. There's some conflicting sources I get into in the book uh, that Guy and I get into in the book. Uh, but if I'm just giving you an off the cuff kind of kind of retelling, uh, essentially, they say, what do you want with us? And he goes, well, I've got a warrant for your arrest. Uh, and then they decided uh, that they did not want to be arrested. And so they pulled their guns. They were armed uh, at that moment. The lawmen were not armed. Uh, they pulled their guns. Uh, they instructed the lawmen to walk down the hallway. Uh, they walked down the hallway. They got. They were up on the, the second floor of the courthouse. They got to the uh, the stairway. When they got to the stairway, they made a break for it. Uh, went down the stairs. Got their horses. Uh, the sheriff and his deputy uh, followed them. Uh, went retrieved guns and then followed them out. Uh, once again, there's endless debate in the sources about who fired first. But a gunfight did erupt. Um, the sheriff uh, shot, uh, as did as did the deputy. Uh, when the smoke was cleared, um, one of the Chipwood brothers uh, was dead. Uh, the older um, Hopped brother, the sheriff, uh, was badly wounded. Um, ultimately, died that several Jake, days later. Right? That was Jake. Uh, yeah. The yes, the older, yeah, yeah, the older. Uh, and the um, the deputy uh, was was unwounded, uh, but he was able to wound the second brother, Oscar Chitwood, who's the, the primary focus of the book. Uh, Oscar was wounded and took off into the countryside. Uh, the deputy actually went and retrieved the uh, the older brother's dead body from from the uh, the carriage that he was trying to escape in. Actually, pulled out his corpse, threw him aside, and then used that wagon to go off in hot pursuit. Uh, other townsfolk immediately joined the pursuit uh, and tried to try to help. Uh, Oscar um, eventually got to got to his family homestead out in the countryside. Found that nobody was there because his uh, his mother and his sister were actually by that time in town uh, identifying the uh, the dead body um, of their uh, of their deceased family member. Uh, he eventually, uh, Oscar eventually decides that he will surrender uh, rather than die of a wound out in the countryside by himself. Uh, and so he ends up surrendering uh, to, to authorities and is taken into custody. So I, I do a much better job in the book, uh, but off the cuff, well, that's the, that's I, the super short version what, of that. One of the things that really struck me as I was reading was just the level of detail that you had. I mean, you describe how the sheriff is a crack shot and he shoots the horse's uh, bridle and saddle so as not to to wound the horse, but he wants to sort of spook the horse and, and kind of get the chitwoods. They're using the horse as cover, and so he wants to get the horse out of the way so he can get a clean shot at the guys who are shooting at him because he's out in the open. And these sort of these little moments, these little tiny precise moments that really give you a sense of the drama of what is happening, you know, out there on these these city streets. It is, it's very compelling, uh, Christopher. It's just it's remarkable stuff. Well, that, that's kind of, and I apologize to the, to the listeners that I don't, off the cuff, I don't remember all the exact details and all that. 
uh, it, it took some time to kind of sort it out and lay out the different sources and all that. Uh, but yeah, hopefully, and it sounds like, sounds like you agree. Hopefully in the book, I did a pretty good job of kind of explaining the details and explaining the, the action moment to moment. So what's interesting about this is that as, as you say, Oscar, who is on the lamb for a couple of days and hiding out in the, the backwoods, he turns himself in, but you have this really fascinating, uh, sort of shift wherein, because uh, Oscar is taken into custody, he is able from his jail cell to start the spin, right? And and Oscar, you write that Oscar did not come from a very highly educated background. He was kind of a, you know country boy who got into some trouble in his earlier years and so forth but he is he's quick-witted enough to know that if he can start his version of the story soon enough then he has a chance at 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 least sowing doubt in people's minds that uh, you know, number one, he wasn't actually under a warrant for anything because there's no proof of it. Number two, well, it wasn't his gun that killed the sheriff. Number three, you know, like uh, he, they shot first, right? <laughs> and this sort of, uh, this kind of really interesting, you know, I couldn't help but think of like, you know, late, late 20th century political campaigns where it's like, we got to get our messaging out first and set the tone or whatever. Well, Oscar's doing this from a dang jail cell in <laughs> Southern Arkansas and he's doing the exact He's running the exact same game. I mean, it's fascinating to see him at work, even as he is wounded, vulnerable, and now on the way to incarceration. Yeah, yeah. We've got that that great picture from, from the newspaper. It's the only picture of Oscar Chitwood, as far as I know, that exists anywhere. Uh, and it's a picture of him uh, propped up in his uh, in his his bed. He's actually in Little Rock, uh, because one of the things that happened was after he got turned in, there was a concern uh, that there was going to be that there was going to be a lynching. There was concern that the people would be so outraged with Oscar they would murder him, and so they actually took him uh, to Little Rock, uh, about an hour, hour and a half away for for safekeeping. So he's sitting there in his bunk. We've got the picture, of course, in the book. Uh, he's sitting up there, and he's he's naked from the from the waist up. But yeah, he's telling his story, and you know, it's 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 interesting to you know you talk about him, you know, putting his spin on it, and, and maybe that's the case. Maybe that's what he's up to. Uh, you know, I think it's also possible that he was being honest and he really felt like he was not the bad guy in this. Um, he certainly, even though you're, you're absolutely right, he was not a, an educated guy. The fact that he's wanting to argue forensic details from something. an autopsy <laughs> is, yeah. I mean, he's, and maybe that's because he, he knows that his gun, so he's arguing about his gun versus his brother's gun and about, you know, I want to see the autopsy report and I want to know, like, I, I want the I want the authorities to prove it was a bullet from my gun that did it. Uh, the fact that he's willing to make that kind of kind of forensic argument, which seems very out of place to me for a country boy in 1910, uh, I think goes to the idea that he was he was pretty clever, either because he's doing spin like you like suggest or because he really feels confident that he didn't do it and he thinks the evidence will will support that well as we know the deck is pretty well stacked against him for reasons we will um, explore uh, shortly but well, you have this really interesting moment in that all takes place in November in, excuse me in August and uh, it happens very very quickly and then in November you have this sort of interesting moment when uh, Sid goes the surviving halt brother, he, he goes to Little Rock where Oscar is in jail uh, because they couldn't keep him in Hot Springs. They thought that was going to be a bad idea. You know, he's vulnerable. Sid goes 
to Little Rock to bring the indictment to Oscar personally and to read him that indictment. And, you know, the, the drama of this, of you had, you, at the beginning of the day on, you know, August 10th, uh, August 17th, 1910, you had these two pairs of brothers and by the, and they were both alive and well. By the end of that day, one of each of those brothers lay dead in the dirt. And in here you have the surviving brother who is the sheriff going to the other surviving brother who is the alleged killer to encounter him in this jail cell. I mean, that, that is cinematic storytelling at its, at its, at its finest. I mean, this just, it's really kind of hard to wrap your mind around what that must've been like. Yeah. And we, we found some wonderful sources and there's a lot of things where we have good direct quotes. And that's one of those encounters where unfortunately uh, nobody has left us a record. I would absolutely love to know what that exchange was. I would love to know. And I think it's, yeah, the fact that he went all the way from Hot Springs to Little Rock, which is not a quick or an easy trip to deliver that when he could have very easily, you know, sent it by other means. Uh, I think it indicates that he wants you personally say something to the man that he argued was responsible for the death of his brother. Oscar is eventually moved back to Hot Springs as far as part of the pretrial uh, arrangements. And after some wrangling, his trial is actually set for March of the forthcoming year. Uh, it's supposed to be March 1911. Uh, we're going to pick up the story next week, but I want to just end it here. The next thing that we know is on December 26th, the day after Christmas, 20, uh, 1910, Oscar, who is awaiting his trial, is shot dead himself. Who pulled the trigger that time? You know, that, that's an interesting question. Officially, the murder, uh, the murder remains unsolved, officially. Um, if, if you're asking for my opinion and what I think uh, the evidence uh, indicates, uh, it's that uh, two deputies, uh, not not Hawk, not the not the brother who was away on vacation, but two other Garland County sheriff's deputies who were on duty that night, that uh, they conspired and they decided to take the law into their own hands and they decided to uh, not give Oscar Chitwood a stay in court. They decided to not tr trust the jury would would find him guilty because there were concerns that uh, that Chitwood actually had a really good defense, uh, at least against the murder charge. Uh, and they decided that they were that they were going to murder him. Um, so yeah, I think I think members I think two Garland County sheriff's deputies uh, murdered Oscar Chitwood that night, and then tried to uh, cover it up by suggesting that some unknown anonymous lynch mob had uh, had committed the murder. Well, we're going to get into all of those lies, fabrications, and webs of deceit uh, this time <laughs> next week. So uh, join us again, everybody, on uh, next Thursday, and we are going to travel back in time to December 26th, 1910, again with Christopher Thrasher. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Christopher. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Christopher Thrasher, the co-author of the Murder of Oscar Chitwood in Hot Springs, Arkansas, published by The History Press. Join us next week for the second part of our conversation, picking up right where we left off, with Chitwood's body still warm on the ground. 
To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org slash shop slash crime dash capsule. And one more time, don't forget to write in to crimecapsule at evergreenpodcasts.com for a chance to win a free copy of one of the books from our recent series on the paranormal. We cannot wait to hear from you. To our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.